You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, while I've been preaching, and it's been a few weeks since I've been talking to you from the front, uh, but what, when I have been, over the last couple of times, I've been using this term called the devil's playbook. And I had this idea that um, the devil has a playbook. Now, a playbook is, is kind of, uh, can be a physical book for, that a sports team uses, of, of the moves that they use. It can be changeable. It's like a dynamic document, thinking about how we make our moves and what we do in certain situations. And uh, in a sporting situation, you will actually watch back videos of your opponents or your upcoming opponents' Um, moves and what they've been doing recently in their match and you think well if they try that we'll, we'll rewrite our playbook ready for this and I want to tell you that there is an enemy who is watching you, he's watching your video and he's watching your lifestyle and he's thinking about how to cut in on the race that you are running for Jesus Christ and um, it might just sound a bit spooky saying there is a real devil and a real enemy out there in, in the spiritual world. But if you've chosen to believe the Bible, then you have to believe that there is an enemy of your soul. There is a, a devil who roams around like a roaring lion. There is an enemy who wants to seek you and devour uh, whomever he can. And we are not unaware of his schemes. And his schemes could be thought of as a playbook. So as we've been thinking about that, I've been talking about the first chapter in, uh, in my version of the devil's playbook. If I, were to, if I were the devil, this is how I'd write my playbook. I'd start with distraction. I'd try and distract Christians from something and to something. I'd try, them, try and distract them from loving God with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength. I'd try and distract them from loving their neighbour as they love themselves. I'd try and distract them from making disciples. And I'd try and distract them to things that were more self-centred, more lusts of the flesh, lusts of the, the eyes, the things that just appeal instantly and quickly. I'd try and distract them to things that gratify the way they feel and, uh, and, and feed their pride. And that was what I talked about uh, when I talked about distraction. And then we looked at the idea of, of doubt and I talked about um, people doubting God's existence which is the first um, idea that I've dealt with many many years as I've taught uh, religious education and philosophy uh, up to sixth form level talking to uh, 17, 18 year olds about arguments for the existence of God and the more you talk about them the more people doubt his existence and it doesn't work and, and there's the one verse in Jeremiah I use that says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And if you're genuinely doubting that God even exists this morning, I would say to you, if you are seeking him with all your heart and you ask him, Lord, if you're there, make yourself real to me, he will do that in his way, in his time, and you continue to seek him with all of your heart. We also talked while we were thinking about doubt in the devil's playbook. He, he tries to get Christians to doubt his character. We believe that he's good and we believe, we've been singing, sorry, that he is good and, and, and there's, uh, sometimes there's nothing good in me but God is good and he's perfect and he's loving and he's caring and he's all powerful and all of those things. But things come along in your life that seem to be contradictory evidence about those beliefs and so we start to doubt his character deep down we might say and we might confess that God is good and powerful and, and loving but in our minds and the way we behave we try and compensate 
for the lack of presence we sense of God in our lives. So we don't see God showing up the way we want him to, and so we compensate with the way we live our lives, and thereby proving we don't really believe that he's good and powerful and loving. And so doubt creeps in. And the more we walk down that path of compensating for the, what, what feel like inadequacies in our belief about God, or, or inadequacies in God even, we, 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 we reinforce that doubt. So I talked about that, and you can find that all on the podcasts. Um, if you go to Brixham.Church and scroll through all the different sermons that have been on, you, you want to listen to those again. Um, I believe they are not just ideas that I've thought of while I've been studying. They are things that I believe God wants to say to this church as he gets us battle ready. He, he's preparing us for something. I, I believe that he's preparing us for things that, that people who've been to this church since the beginning have never seen yet. Not because I'm here and I'm here to bring new things. I'm, I'm no new president or prime minister. It's just God's doing something. And, and I, I'm just privileged to be part of it. I'm praying that what we're seeing, as we, as we pray for Kat and see her come through rehab, I'm praying that she's actually a test case for us as a church. And God is saying, well, let's see how you handle this. Are you going to love this person? Are you going to, are you going to send a, a, a letters of encouragement, like when we sponsor a compassion child and we, we're encouraged to, to send a letter with a, with a Bible verse? Are you going to love and, and gather around this person? There are people that are addicted to pornography. There are people that are addicted to gambling. There's, there, there are alcoholics. There, there are people that are, are, are struggling. And the church could get really messy if we start to embrace those people. But Jesus came for those people, as well as the rich, as well as the, the people that are addicted to, to money and all sorts of things. And I'm just praying that, that as, cat, as we, we've been blessed with the privilege of nurturing and helping someone here, and that as we gather around as a community, as a family, and we show family to that person, that God says, here's a church I can send more messy people to and really wreck their heads and really mess up their routines and cause disruption in the church as I, as I bring my gospel to people who've never heard it before. I just pray that that's just the beginning, a trickle of something great that God wants to do in people who we wouldn't normally see in church and that's got nothing to do with doubt. It's just something that obviously was on my heart. So it might have something to do with doubt. I can't remember how I got there. Um, today we're going to talk about, about despondency. And uh, we all feel it at times, you know. And um, while we're doing this, the, the verse that I've kept coming back to all the way through, you probably haven't noticed, but every time I've come to the end, I'm doing it at the beginning now, is that we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is the solution to all of this. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We do that by prayer. We do that by staying together as a family and not forsaking those meetings uh, and getting here on time and fellowshipping together and staying behind for coffee and not rushing off and being together. And we do it by getting into the Word. I was just blessed to look round as Mark on the back row there was quoting scripture in that prayer time. He wasn't reading it. It must have been three or four verses and he, he wasn't reading it. It's just there. He gets it. This is a guy who gets it. I need God's word inside of me. He didn't fumble through the Bible and, and find the right verse to read. It's in him. And so thanks for sharing. Thanks for the times that you do share from the word because it's, it's just always a blessing to me. Right, so let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith.
For the joy that was set before him, that's us, we're the joy that was set before him. For us, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He put aside doubt. He put aside distraction. He put aside the despondency of the Garden of Eden. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And forever he is glorified. Forever he is lifted high. Forever he is risen. He is alive. And we worship him. But we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that's what we're going to do throughout all these moments of doubt, despondency, despair, all these things. As I mentioned last week, we were recently in Ireland visiting Barry and, uh, and Sylve, and they live in the middle of, of nowhere. If you can find nowhere, you'll just and put a pinpoint right in the middle of it, that's where they live. And um, when you go out at night, it's, it's dark, it's proper dark. You can actually see on a hill in the distance a few street lights of a nearby town. So that's just, the, that's just outside of nowhere, but we're in the middle of nowhere. And um, on one of the first nights, Sam and Abigail went outside while well, it was dark, and they went round the back of the, the converted barn we were staying in, and uh, they were gone about, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes, and they came back and said, come out, come out here, come out here, because it's actually really scary. And, uh, I mean, it's, they, they, won't, they won't come back petrified or anything like that. It wasn't one of those Scooby-Doo, I've seen a ghost moments. But it was kind of scary. So I went out, and uh, obviously I wasn't scared, because, uh, you know, I'm a real man. But <laughs> you just have to go behind that barn and walk about 10 metres into the woods, and it is just pitch black. And the other thing is, is it's deafeningly silent. It's just weird, the silence. And, and Sam said, just stand still. Just stand still for a minute, Dad. And, uh, and we just stood there in blackness and silence, apart from just a bit of a rustling of, of, the, of the wind in the leaves and just a bit of a scampering here and there. It's like there's something going on in the woods. And we've heard about the deer that go, the, the, the fallow deer that go through their land and all that sort of thing. But it's just dark. And I just think if... And obviously I just said, I, I, I'm not scared. <laughs> it's not scary. And why are you not scared? Because I've got the Lord with me. Now let's go back in and lock the door. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but I can imagine if you were to walk in another 10 metres, another, another 10 metres, and you didn't have your phone with you to, to guide you or anything like that, it would be quite difficult to find your way back. And it would be scary. And it would be silent. And even though the home was not far away, you're just in a really dark place. And for all of us, at some point in our lives, we go through an emotional time that feels just like that. We go through times where there is just darkness all around. And we think if we try and walk in one direction, we don't even know if we're getting nearer or further from home. And we don't know if we're going to bump into something. And we might hear noises and they don't sound very friendly. And we might hear voices and they don't sound very friendly. And it is darkness. And do you know what? I want to tell some people this morning, it's not a sin to feel like that. And you haven't sinned when you've got into that place. Very often, it's just what you're having to go through. David cried out to God in the Psalms because he just felt like he was in despair at times. And all through the Bible, I was reading about um, a, a, a lady who'd been through the deepest depression 
and her husband was in ministry and everything was supposed to be supposed to be great and she said I couldn't deal with just nice bible verses I couldn't deal with Christians just I wanted to slap Christians around the head when they just quoted a twee bible verse and she said but in the bible I found friends and then she started quoting these scriptures of people who just cried out to God and she said that's how I feel I've got friends in the Bible who've been through this. It's not a bad thing. It is a bad thing, but it it doesn't make you a bad person if you go through these moments of despondency. But what is bad is when you choose not to focus on Jesus because that's where the devil comes in and he just tries to lead you further and further into despondency. It's what John Bunyan wrote about when he, in his Pilgrim's Progress years and years ago, uh, the, the character called Christian goes into this slough of despond, which is like a swamp of despair. So it's like a, a mo- it's not modern now, but it, in those days it was like a modern parable of the Christian journey. And this guy called Christian finds himself in this slough of despond, this swamp of despair. It's part of most Christians' lives. And this person called help comes along. And maybe actually you're listening to this and you think, well, I never feel that depressed. I've never felt that bad. And and I don't really want to expect it's going to come. Well, maybe you're meant to be help in the story. Maybe you're meant to be the person who comes alongside. So there's lots of ways in which we can, we can end up feeling despair, despondency, de- depression. Sometimes it's because as good Christians we're, we're full of faith and we're believing for great things, but those great things just don't happen. The good things that don't happen. Or maybe there's just a delay in God's timing and it, you just kind of think, well, is this ever going to come through for me? Is this ever actually going to happen? Sometimes it's not the good things that don't happen, but it's the bad things that do happen. This was not in the script. This was not supposed to happen. The bad things that do happen, the good things that don't happen, we can feel stress at work, we can feel stress from exams, we can feel stress from family crisis, we can, we can feel stress and despondency from all sorts, of, all sorts of attacks that we get from different areas of life. But the one thing is, we don't lose sight of Jesus. We don't stop fellowshipping together. We don't stop meeting as a family. Because in this place, there are good people who will gather around you and allow you to be authentic and real. Because that's the kind of family we are. It's not all rosy all the time for all of us. And I celebrate when it is. It's not all bad all the time either. Thank the Lord. But I'm here to talk about the times where despondency comes and the enemy uses it to tell you, well, just don't bother. And you stop fellowshipping, you stop coming to church, you stop reading the Bible, you stop praying, and you're on a downward spiral. You will never get out of that swamp of despair. It's all through the Bible. There are lots of characters who felt it. Even Jesus felt terrible in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? And he sweat drops of blood as he said to God, he said to the Father, let this cup pass from me. If it, if it's, but if it's your will, I'm going to go for it. He still was praying in that moment. I want to talk about one character who um, just stands out to me as I've said before, I think he was possibly bipolar. Elijah. Elijah had this absolutely incredible mountaintop experience with God in one chapter. And in the next chapter, he wants to die. 
And sometimes we can be like that in the chapters of our life. In one chapter, we're having this mountaintop experience with God. We've, we've been to our version of whatever soul survivor would be, and, and we've felt absolutely awesome. And then the next chapter is just despondency. And how did that happen? It's almost like you oscillate between emotions, some of us. Some of us don't. Some of us are, you know, pretty plain and probably quite boring if you just level all the time. <laughs> Like Andrea, she's just very level and plain all the time. So. Yeah, those who know me know that I'm joking. The word despondency means low spirits from loss of hope or courage. So we get times in our lives where we lose hope or we lose courage. It happens to everybody. Let's be real about it. Let's have a look at Elijah then. And I'm just going to pick up in 1 Kings 19 and read through and as... Uh, as we read through, I will make some comments and then finish up with some, some action points for us all at the end. And I'm not reading the whole of 1 Kings 19. So here we go. In verse 1, it says, Now Ahab, Ahab is the king. He's the king of Israel. And he's abandoned the Lord's commandments and he's been following foreign gods because his wife, Jezebel, has come from a northern kingdom called Phoenicia, and in Phoenicia, they worship different gods. They're not interested in the one true living God. And because she's an influential character, she has influenced Ahab to abandon God, abandon his commandments, and follow these foreign gods. So um, because of that, God raises up Elijah and has this incredible experience that I talked about, which most of you, if you're good Christians or if you're Christians for some time, you will know this story. Um, he has this incredible demonstration of God's power on this mountain called Mount Carmel and fire comes down from heaven and before that, Elijah rebuilds the altar of God and that's a really important thing. He's rebuilt the altar, he's rebuilt worship. Worshipping God has come back into play and Jezebel's not happy about it. So when Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, You've got 24 hours, and I'm, I'm going to make sure you're dead within 24 hours. But she starts this phrase with, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. Well, you'd expect, if you'd just read the chapter before, and how bold and courageous Elijah was, he even was making, them, making fun of these other prophets. There's a bit of humor and irony in the way Elijah deals with these, these prophets, because their, gods aren't, their God isn't answering them. And he's taking the mick out of them, and he's strong, he's bold, he's courageous. He brings down fire from heaven. He's an incredible prophet of God. You'd think Elijah at this point would say, May the gods, what, those gods who I just proved aren't even true? Those gods, what gods? They're just blocks of wood. They're just idols that you worship. Why should I be afraid if you're swearing by those gods that I've just disproved? Why should that be a threat to me? Is that Elijah's response? No, it isn't. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He was afraid. It just doesn't seem to match. It doesn't seem to patch together the chapter 18 into 19. It's, is this the same Elijah? 
But this is the way we can all feel at times in our lives. We have these incredible moments, and in the moment, we feel like it's always going to be this way. I'm always going to feel this strong. I'm always going to have this faith. I'm going to come back from this conference fired up, and I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to come back from, I'm going to go into Monday out of that, after that great Sunday with, with my other Christian friends, and I'm going to live for Jesus. And then on Monday morning, everything just seems to have disappeared. It's, it's just the way we are as humans and it's good to be aware of it and it's good to be real about it and not pretend because you end up putting on this face that's fake and it just doesn't wash, it doesn't work. When he came, so he's run for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, and we could just read on, but it's worth noting that that's a hundred miles away. So one word from Jezebel and he's run a hundred miles and this is the first mistake I believe Elijah made. Because Elijah was called to be in that place at that time, and that's where he was seeing the miracles. But because fear had crept into his heart, because despondency had crept in, he ran a hundred miles to get away from Jezebel instead of standing up to her like he stood up to Ahab the day before. And 450 prophets of, of the false god died. He ran. And he was afraid, and he ran a hundred miles. And then when he got there, he left his servant there. I believe that's his second mistake, isolation. We isolate ourselves when we start to feel despondent. Now, I'm an introvert. I'm very happy talking to all of you like this. That's just the way I am. Um, but in a general day-to-day -day thing, I'm quite happy on my own. I quite like being on my own. So if I'm feeling despondent, I don't want to be around people. I want to be on my own, and I want to rock in the corner, just cradling my knees and, and be on my own. Ah, it doesn't happen very often. And I think there's people in this room who are a little bit introverted as well. And I would just challenge you, when you start to feel the warning signs that it's getting like this, don't stop coming here. Don't stop going to the home group that you used to go to. And stay connected because it's good for you. He left his servant behind. Now think about it. His servant, singular, not one of his servants. He's got one servant by the grammatical form of that sentence. He has one servant. Do you remember what his servant was last doing? He was running up and down looking for a cloud. Do you remember? Because Elijah, he had prophesied that there would be no rain because Ahab had been worshipping these false gods. And he says, there's no going to, not going to be any rain until I say so. Three and a half years later, after this incredible miracle that we just talked about on Mount Carmel, this great victory in the previous chapter, Elijah says, right, now it's going to rain. And it did, but it took some time. And Elijah had his servant with him. And Elijah's bent double praying in fact, he's in the position he's in, that's described quite graphically, that's the same position Hebrew women give birth in. So it's like Elijah's giving birth to something, and he keeps sending his, his servant back to look for rain. And there's no rain, there's no, no, not, a, not a cloud in the sky, and he keeps sending him back and back and back until he says there's a cloud. The size of a man's hands, how that worked with perspective, I've no idea. It could have been massive, I don't know how it worked. There was a cloud and it absolutely pelted down. And Ahab had to go back in his chariot quick so his wheels didn't get caught in the mud and 
Elijah ran ahead of him miraculously. But his servant was with him through that. This is what I'm trying to say. This isn't just a fun storytelling time. This is the servant who saw all of that. The servant who saw the fire come from heaven. The servant who saw the cloud, the first one to see the cloud, before Elijah did. The the servant who came back to Elijah and said, there's a cloud. The servant who saw the rain. The servant who stayed by Elijah's side through all of that and he left him behind and walked off. Now, if, if you're that servant, I want you to not take no for an answer and say, no, Elijah, I'm coming with you. Don't leave people isolated when you can tell they're on a downer. Even if it seems a bit pushy, even if you're their servant, that you feel like they're a bit more authoritative than you, don't leave them behind. So I think this is a mistake the servant made as well. I'm just reading into it, just to make a point. Don't isolate yourself. Don't leave behind the people who have journeyed with you already. They're important. God put you together for a reason. Some of the people you've journeyed with and you've shared life with and you then moved on, sometimes you've got to go back to those people because they know you and they know your weaknesses and that's why you probably don't want to go back to them. But they're the people you can be real with. If they're still in tune with God, just don't isolate yourself. Don't leave your servant or your, your companion, your traveling companion behind. So, mistake number one, he ran for his life 100 miles. Mistake number two, he isolated himself. He left his companion behind. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So, there he is, isolating himself. His, his depression is real. He's not feeling good. He's moving out and he's moving away from other people. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. This is the reality of how he's feeling. He's got to that absolute point of wishing he would die. He's not quite suicidal, because he's not trying to kill himself, but he's asking the Lord to take his life. I wonder if anyone in this room's ever ever been there, ever felt like that. I would say statistically, the chances are there's, there's a few people who've been at that point before. I haven't, but I know people who have. It's not a very good place to be, and the last thing to do is to be on your own. At once, in fact, I, I, um, I had one more thing to say about that. There was a person, who you all, most of us know, who was at that point, and he now lives in Ireland. And he was telling us while we were there, he was going through a very, very dark phase in his life. He would walk to the end of the breakwater and consider throwing himself off. He would walk to the end of Berry Head. This is like two o'clock in the morning, and consider throwing himself off. On the breakwater, if you walk towards the lighthouse, if you turn back, you can see the guest houses along Berryhead Road. There's one guest house there where the owner left a light on every night and said to Barry, Barry, that light's on for you. Because I know you're walking along the breakwater at two o'clock in the morning and I know what you're going through. Barry, the door's always open, the kettle's always on. 
and that light's on for you. And Barry said, when I walked along there and I looked over my shoulder, I could see that light on in that guest house and I knew that light had been left on for me. Be that person. If you don't feel despondent, be the person who leaves the light on. Be the angel at the, at the broom bush that we're about to read about. And there was a time where Barry told us, while we were away, he told us the turning point for him. He was about to throw himself off the edge of Berry Head and he heard God speak to him. He says, don't do that, Barry. I've got plans for you. And God says to you, I've got plans for you. I've got plans for you. However dark it feels, however into the woods you've walked, however far from God you feel you've got, he's still got plans for you. He can send a rescue helicopter in to pull you out of those woods, however deep you've gone in. And he'll do it. You've just got to look to Jesus. You've got to call on his name. When you seek me with all of your heart, you will seek me and you'll find me. Ever felt that black? Ever felt that dark? There's nowhere that you can go that God can't find you. So Elijah has the same experience. At least he's, he's under this broom bush. But at least he's talking to God. I mean, he might be saying, take my life, and it's not, take my life and let it be. That wonderful hymn, <laughs> consecrated Lord. Do you remember that one? Good. Do that next week. Um, it's take my life. But at least he's talking to God. At least he's authentic with God. At least he's not putting on his Sunday Christian smile. And God comes, doesn't he? Let's read on. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down. So the next lesson I learned from this was to feed from what God gives you. Feed from God. There's many places you can feed from when you're in despair. There are many places, payday pig loans. That's a place you can feed from. You're in financial despair. You can feed from all sorts of places. You can take out a very dodgy loan. You're in some sort of other despair and you can, you can feed from a bottle. You can turn to all sorts of things. You're feeling lonely, you can find companionship in the wrong place. Only feed from what God gives you. His word. At least he's talking to God. And now he's feeding from God. So what I'm learning from Elijah in this story is although he's run away, he's run 100 miles, he's not run so far that God can't reach him. Although he's, he's saying, I want to die, at least he's talking to God and God's meeting him. And although he's, he's just absolutely at his wit's end, he's feeding from something that God is providing. And I would just say, just stay in the word. Stay in the word. Stay in the word. I was um, listening to Dr. Caroline Leaf talk about the, the word of God being important in, in your life and how she, she doesn't like to use scripture as a band-aid to, to just fix us when we're in trouble. But she, if the word is inside me, I can live it out. 
And just stay in the word. Stay in the word in the good times. Feed from what God has to give you. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. I like that. It's like, <laughs> it's real, isn't it? You know, you've, you've just run 100 miles away, and then you've walked another day's journey, and then you feel like dying. But God's given you some food, but you still need a bit of a rest. And he has a bit of a nap. The angel of the Lord came to him a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. What journey? See, I've always read this and the next thing he does is he goes to Horeb, which is the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where um, Moses received the Ten Commandments, the mountains associated with, with being a holy mountain. But, uh, so I, I just think, well, that's the journey. But actually, I'm starting to think that the journey was meant to be somewhere else. I think from this point, Elijah's still running away because he's going further away from his, his destiny, which is to be a prophet in the presence of, of King Ahab, where all the mess is going on. So when the angel says, the journey is too big for you, I'm going to choose to believe that the angel means the journey back, because at the end of this passage, or at the end of my reading, it's going to say, go back where you came from. God's heart is always for restoration. So I just think that the, the journey was, was the one back. So got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He travelled 40 days and 40 nights. That must have been a big meal and a miraculous journey until he reached Horeb. So God's with him. God's strengthening him to travel 40 days and 40 nights, strengthened by one meal. That's miraculous. That's wonderful. So you could argue that he was meant to go to Horeb, the mountain of God. But I'm still just thinking, well, maybe by God's grace, he allows him to carry on. Where he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Because, and my interpretation is, because you're supposed to be with Ahab, telling him what to do and standing up to Jezebel. You big wimp. You've got me on your side. Anyway, that's just the John Pett's idea, version. He replied, and this is where he has a good moan at God. So here's another lesson. Don't be afraid to have a good moan at God. In fact, um, another person I read said, there's a difference between moaning and mourning. And sometimes we mourn or grieve for things that aren't just a dead loved one. Sometimes we can grieve when we lose a job. We might grieve when, when, um, when we lose health. We might grieve over a financial change in our lives because anything that involves loss should involve grieving because grieving is important. It's part of the human um, mental health requirements. You need to be able to grieve. And if you don't, um, if you don't mourn, you might end up moaning instead and I think what Elijah is doing here is just letting it all out to God in a healthy way there's nothing wrong with it and, and even though some of the things Elijah says here aren't even true God doesn't even bother correcting him because God's more interested in the direction of his life than the accuracy of his moaning or mourning he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. True. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars. True. And put your prophets to death by the sword. Did happen. I am the only one left. False. There's prophets hiding in, hiding in caves, which he knows about. I, I can't remember how many because I haven't read it recently. Is it 100? 50 in one cave, 50 in another, something like that. And a guy feeding them. So I'm not the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. True, but so. 
The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire this time. And I feel like God was showing Elijah all the things that he's done in the past and, and, and yeah, we, I, I've done those things for Moses as well and I've done these things for you but you're not in the right place. All those things, they, they can happen and I can do those things but this is not where you're meant to be. I'm not in those things right now. I'm in the still small voice. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This, the word gentle whisper, it's a difficult Hebrew phrase. It's hard to interpret or translate. Um, some have said it could, be, it, it could be just described as a silence so silent that it's deafening, or that you can hear it. A silence so quiet that you can hear it is one other translation. A still small voice is another translation. But it's, it, it's the fact that Elijah was standing there and he'd seen all these incredible things, the earthquake, the wind and the fire... And God wasn't in those things. See, God doesn't always speak the way you want him to. God doesn't always speak the way you expect him to. And God doesn't always speak the way he did last time. Yes, sometimes he's in an earthquake. Sometimes he's in, in, a, in, a, in a fire. And he was in the previous chapter for Elijah. But right here and right now, I'm trying to speak to you in a certain way, says the Lord. I've got my own way of speaking to you. My own way of cutting through all of your ego and all of your worries and all of your fears and cutting right through into your heart. And this time, it's going to be a silence so quiet that you can hear it. And in that silence, Elijah pulls his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. The voice comes again with the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Same script. The Lord said to him, I love this because he doesn't address any of that. It just, just, it's like when you've got a little child just going on and on and on and you just you actually say what, what you want them to hear. Go back the way you came. And for some of us here this morning, I just feel like there is the need to remember that God's heart is for restoration. He wants to take you back. You might be feeling despondent. He might be, you might be feeling in absolute despair. And you might have run away a little bit. You might have run a hundred miles. You might have left people behind like he left his servant behind. But God wants you to go back to where you came. He wants you to go back to his heart. He wants you to come back to his heart and to come back to the purpose that you know he's called you to. I don't know who that's for. But Elijah had to go back to where he came. The journey that the angel gave him food for, I believe, was the journey back to his purpose. And at that place of purpose, that's where he might see the earthquake, the wind and the fire, because that's where God's placed him you see God's power when you're working within his purpose and that's why the angel or the voice said go back where you came from 
I've got plans for you. Just like he said to our friend recently, I've got plans for you. Go back. Go back. I want to restore. I want to restore something incredible in your life. So if you're feeling despondent this morning, the first thing I felt to say was, let's be aware of the devil's playbook to make this worse than it already is. You know how those frogs just blow themselves up to make themselves look bigger than they really are? That's what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to show you that your problem, he's trying to make you feel like you're right in the middle of the woods when you're just on the edge near the nice warm converted barn. Don't be afraid. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. Don't, don't run away or isolate yourself like Elijah did. I've made these points already, so I'm not going to elaborate on them. Feed from God. Elijah had the food taken from him. So while you're feeling despondent, remember these things. Don't be afraid. Don't isolate yourself. Feed from the Lord. There's other places to feed from, and they are, they are more attractive than the Word of God on, on the outside. I'm just being honest with you. You know, if it's a choice between picking up a Bible or opening your Bible app and doing something else that you feel like might feed you on the, on the surface, the Bible looks very unattractive very often. Get into a habit of feeding from the Word. Don't assume God will speak the same way twice, the earthquake, the wind, the fire, and then it actually was in the, in the still, small voice. Let it all out. Remember I talked about uh, mourning but not moaning. If you don't let it out in a healthy way, you will act it out in an unhealthy way. And that's not fair on other people. Let it all out. Remember Elijah's, and I'm even if you think maybe you might be saying it a bit wrong, because Elijah probably knew deep down that he wasn't the only one left, but I feel like the only one. Well, he will feel a bit isolated, because you just run 100 miles. Anyway, just let it all out in a healthy way, so you don't end up acting it out in an unhealthy way. Believe that God's plan is always to restore. Go back to the place you came from. Go back to the good times, if you like. It might not be a physical returning to a town or a place or a relationship, but it might be, I'm going to take you back to the good times where you're in my purpose and you're seeing the big miracles and all the great things are happening. His plan is to restore. And for those of us who are not in that place of despondency, this is a great calling on this church, I believe, is just to be the companion on someone's journey. I really feel that strongly. There are some amazing people sitting in front of me who would just sit with someone, who would do anything for the neighbour, just incredible. Be encouraged to do that. Be encouraged to look out for people. Be encouraged. As the Spirit leaves, that leads, don't do it in a way that's sort of all kind of under law and all that, look, there's a need there, there's a need there, I must run around and, and burn myself out. But be encouraged to listen to the Holy Spirit to allow you to be somebody's help when they're in that slough of despond. And I love that fact that in James chapter 5, Elijah is mentioned, and James only mentions the good bits. He says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Now that for me is referring to chapter 19 we've just read. He was very human in that chapter, wasn't he? He felt despondent. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. That's what had happened in 
in chapter, well, the chapters before. But the good news for you and me is he was an ordinary human being. It says so in the Word. It says so in the New Testament. He was ordinary. He doesn't have to be this big, super Mark Goodyear prophet or even close to such a high status. But you know what I'm saying. It wasn't this huge, amazing prophet that just was, had some sort of superpowers. He was an ordinary human being and he saw great miracles. And that's what he can do through all of us. Whether we're feeling despondent this morning or whether we're feeling like God wants to use us to help the despondent, let's not let the devil get a foothold. Let's not let him get, get um, too far through his playbook before he's looking for another chapter because it's not worked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you never leave us. You never forsake us. That when we run away, you're still there. That if, even if I run um, to the end of the earth, you'll be there waiting for me. Thank you that you are always present. You are my ever-present help in times of trouble. I thank you, God. And I thank you for these amazing people that I'm proud to call my local church family. And I just pray that you would lead us as a congregation into what the next steps are for us to, to share your love with the despondents, with those despairing. And if there are those amongst us this morning who feel that despair and that despondency, may they be encouraged this morning by your word and also encouraged by one another as we gather around and, and just have fellowship together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit brixham.church.